Hello and welcome to Insights in Focus podcast. My name is Pamela Hillig. I'm an actuarial manager at Insight Life Solutions. And today I'm joined by Nilen Naidu. Now we have a special episode of the podcast today. We're doing um, an open books podcast, which means we're getting to know someone fascinating and well-respected in the industry based on the books they've read and loved. So Nalen may need no introduction to, to many of our audience, but for those who aren't familiar with him, Nalen is a highly respected actuary in the South African actuarial world. Um, and he spent his first 17 years of his career in various insurance roles before moving to NASPASS two years ago to head up the Property 24 business. Um, so he's finding new ways to apply actuarial and leadership skills to property and cars online classified industries. He also holds various leadership positions and board structures and is the chair of the ASA Education Board, chair of the ASA Transformation Committee, and is ASA President-elect. Welcome, Lillian. Thank you, Pamela. Wonderful to be here. Thank Great. Now tell me, are you a reader? Ah, very much, very much so. Good, because like we said, on this podcast, we will talk about you, get to know you, and what you're busy with, what you're passionate about, but through the lens of books that, you, that you've read and loved. So think of it as Desert Island Discs for Bibliophiles. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. But let's get started with a bit about you. And I think what everyone would love to know is how does an actuary get into Property 24? So tell me a bit about your career leading up to that and then the transition to your current role. Yeah, sure, sure, Pamela. Thanks. So I've, I've had mainly traditional actuarial roles my whole career. I started off as a as an actuarial uh, specialist at All Mutual, doing valuations, valuations and pricing type of work. Um, I was doing most of the work the outside of South Africa, so doing work in, in Kenya, Malawi, Namibia. And that's, uh, that sort of introduced a whole new flavor to the type of work I was doing because there weren't many actuaries working in those countries. And that increased my exposure then to different parts of the business. Um, I still kept it very traditional though. Uh, and and uh, so so I can't uh, you know th that's definitely been been a case. Um, after that, um, after I got married, my wife and I felt it was a good idea to spend a bit of time abroad, and so we moved to the UK. And with Aviva, I spent time um, in London, and then also with Aviva in Chicago, and then in Singapore. And all the work in that part of my career was capital, financial reporting, capital management. Technical. Um, technical work. Uh, I think the the work was wonderful because of the cultural diversity and learning new things and seeing new parts of the world, but it was technical actuarial work. First role I had that maybe branched it outside, a little bit more outside, was the capital job I had in Singapore. That was uh, still technical concepts, but a little bit more of a business focus in the risk function of Aviva Asia's um, regional office. And that gave me a different sort of exposure to the different businesses. It was all a regional, it was a regional job. Um, my wife and I then decided to come back to Cape Town uh, or back to South Africa. And about 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, we moved back um, and I joined Liberty. And at Liberty, um, I had what would probably be regarded as as a as first more commercial role, which was uh, the head of reinsurance. And... Um, so still technical actuarial concepts, but much more commercial engagements with uh, with reinsurance partners. And then it went from there into risk management and into people management and uh, the actuarial development program that Liberty had, which was like a career management office 
quite a wide range of quite a wide range of things. But what happened in the last five years of my time at Liberty was various changes that were going on within the business meant that some of the fintech and insurtech assets and investments that the company had made over time needed someone to to look after them. And I was fortunate enough to have some of those assets into my uh, into my world. Um, and so business agility, uh, agile thinking, innovation, design thinking, and then of course the tech elements became a much bigger part of my job. Um, and and that's probably where the start of the of the 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 sort of more common ground in my current role actually actually started. Um, I spent a lot of time in distribution at Liberty, which also gives me sales exposure, which is also important for the current role. And so two years ago, um, an opportunity arose to to uh, spend spend some time now in my current role, which was the head of Property Twenty Four. It at first appeared quite daunting. It was an extremely long process to decide that this was the right role given the change, the, the mm-hmm. wide change. But the similarities and some of the progression, the innovation, the tech, th- there was a lot of commonality. Um, and so so it was a bit of a risk, a bit of a leap. I, I do describe it to people as a leap of faith because you, know, you never know how it's going to work. And, and I'm very grateful that NASPAS and um, also made the leap of faith at taking a bit of a chance outside of uh, what they would regard as more traditional business managers. Um, and so far, it's been fun. It's been a fantastic two years in this in this role. Amazing. Now, it's almost time to talk about the first book you've brought. But before we do, I'd like to find out about your reading habits a little bit more. So have you always loved reading or where did your love of reading start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the first... Uh, so we grew up with books as children and always being read to and then reading to others. Um, and my first uh, memory of some of the books that we read were actually me by reciting them back to my parents, you know, very, very young ages where you don't actually read. You're just reciting the words <laughs> to the people around you. Um, and thank goodness I actually have some of those books still. My mom kept them from a little, little important moment. You didn't so bring one today. Didn't bring it today. They're all, they're all back in KZN. Um uh, uh, sort of golden books and Richard Scarry oh, books. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh, absolutely beautiful little. So anyway, that was that's pretty much uh, where it all started. And look, reading for me, it's it's um, it's taken cycles. So so uh, you know, a lot of reading at school. When I got to campus, to be honest, there wasn't much time. And actuarial studies, I didn't really read much. There was a gap. When we moved abroad, public transports meant there was a lot more time again. So then I read a lot. When the kids were born, less time. And actually, it was lockdown that really kicked off another wave. So I've had, like, the last four or five years, another busy wave of reading. So for me, it's been very, it's been a bit cyclical. Okay, and you have three young boys? Three young boys that uh, that uh, that allow me to read in any noise level environment. Okay. I've now got the skill to... <laughs> To, to read regardless of what's going on, on around me. And do they love reading as well? They do, they do. So I'm extremely proud of all of them. I um, uh, My eldest can devour books. Uh, I mean, one of the books I'm currently reading actually is a book he read uh, recently and recommended to me. Okay. Um, and uh, so, I mean, he he's, he's almost 10 and he just devours books. Um, and my seven-year-old... Has I mean it's it's actually phenomenal to watch him read because he's made that transition from 
you know, sort of uh, just barely being able to put the words together. It's now fluent reading, and he can read full story to you. It's absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. being read to. Um, and then, of course, our baby is as well. He's four. He's almost four, and he is. Uh, he's really picked up the baton really well, and so we're proud of them because reading is such an important part of the household. My wife reads a lot as well, so it's uh, it's a part of the house. I actually read or I saw a headline the other day. It could just be clickbait, but apparently the best predictor of academic success in children is you know whether their parents read to them from very small. So. Sure, that sounds right. I don't think it's clickbait. I think (laughs) (laughs) something to it. So tell me about the first book that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, definitely. So the first one I actually don't have here to show you. Um, It's out on loan uh, with a family member. Name and shame. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's actually called um, Why We Sleep, and it's by Matthew Walker. now, this was first introduced to me by a colleague in 2017, 2018. During this time, it was the height of my travels to to Joburg. Um, I was traveling about half the week, every week. And um, it was always early morning flights, late evening flights. Sleep definitely was the was the, um, the one thing that I was very happy to sacrifice uh, at that stage of my career. Um and it took me another three years or so before I finally bought the book. So it was lockdown, being at home in a different sort of calm environment. And I said, okay, I'm actually going to get it. So I bought it, in Take a lot from, I bought it from Take a Lot in 2020 and read it very quickly. Um, it was extremely easy to read, data-driven. But the premise behind it is I don't think we actually realize just how important this this part of our lives are. And it's uh, we live in a society where it's actually acceptable to that's the one thing you skimp on Mm. eating as well but sleep and eat i mean people just are very happy to sacrifice the long-term impacts of doing so are quite quite astounding um you know one of the things the books talks the book talks about is um how sleep is actually from an evolutionary perspective one of the strangest one of the strangest uh uh, concepts uh, because there you are out in the wild completely vulnerable for eight hours a night in the dark. Yeah. And almost every animal, I think it might be every animal, every every organism does it. There's a period that they enter called sleep. Um, and it's because of the healing and restorative nature and all that other stuff that's so important. So so sleep for me is is now extremely important. And I prioritize that over over most over most things. Um and the book also has really helpful guides on sort of what what good sleep quality is and what can lead to bad sleep quality. And it changes then, it actually has changed my nighttime routine and what I get up to, you know, in the sort of two, three hours. So what are some of the changes you've made? So I think the one, um, the one, the one is probably obvious, but about caffeine and caffeine in the time, in a time of day that you, that you, uh, that you consume caffeine and actually what caffeine does to your body in terms of the sleep hormone and how, how it, can mess up with the sleep hormone. Um, I think other changes um, are things like alcohol and how much alcohol you consume before sleeping because that impacts the quality as well. Screen time, so we've heard about that, you know, the amount of screen time you have before you fall asleep and and therefore, you know, if you're going to read or do something more relaxing. Um, I think some of those, uh, some of those changes were 
you know, so reasonably easy to make. But others are harder. I mean, life takes you to various places and you are doing things that you can't quite, you know, can't control all the time. And so for me, it's actually been just more about cognizant of that there's there's this there's this thing here and it's no longer something to take for granted, actually. Um, so, yeah. Do, does everyone need eight hours? <laughs> so not according to the book. It is. Okay. It does depend very much on where you are and it is age-dependent as well. Um, okay. And so... Um, you know, I think I think it's a good it's a good marker. So it's a very good sort of assessment of whether you're there, whether you're in that right ballpark. Um, I think the, the the what the book does help you understand a little bit more is the different stages of sleep and yeah. how it progresses through the nights and 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 so the length is important, but also you know sort of the disruptions you generally have through the night. Everyone has disruptions. That you know, we live in we live in cities, right? Yeah. I mean, it's always disruption. Um, but there are certain stages at which your brain is is really recovering, and it actually is very helpful for it not to be, not to be too disturbed. Um, and and actually, what I realized was a lot of the flights that I was taking in those early morning required me to wake up right in the middle of that important uh, that important period. And so, you know, it it does depend on when you go to sleep and how long. And, you know, there's a lot of dependencies here, but knowing that can at least help you adjust. You can't stop taking early flights. We live in worlds where you know you can't, but at least you can be aware of that phase and then try and plan your sleep so that at least you've got it before you need to wake. And do you think there's potential for application to insurance underwriting? Kind of. Some of the insight guys did some research on that a few years ago. Great question. So, um, at the time it was recommended um, to me in 2017, 2018, it was actually part of a work, uh, a work sort of wellness conversation. Uh, but it wasn't for employees; it was actually for customers. And um, there was a lot of research at the time just about how important sleep is, and if you could track it, um, if you could track it in a reliable way. Um, could that not be something that then could feed into either an ongoing health management program like a rewards program or could it be fed into insurance products and fed in, in to help people help people be incentivized almost to sleep yeah um you know the tracking behind it can be a little bit tricky the quality measures you know also a little bit tricky i think most of the studies um certainly in the book and it is a reasonably cool book now, um, you know. So I'm sure the tech has moved on, but a lot of it to get accurate readings requires you to actually have stuff attached to your head, and okay. you know, so you're under monitoring. Uh, it's not quite the same as the as the little detector on your on your wrist. Okay. Um, and so I think to get uh, to get accurate, accurate for the purposes of maybe underwriting and insurance purposes, you know, I think you'd need a risk tolerance somewhere there. Um, but to get eighty percent of the way there. To vastly improve people's lives, yeah, definitely. I mean, there you can, <laughs> there you can definitely make it uh, make it something that people feel they need to fix. Okay. And do you have a favorite quote from the book? I do, I do, I do. Um, yes, when you prepared earlier, I did. I did actually get this. I knew you were going to ask me the quote questions. <laughs> so I had to. Uh, yeah. So I really like this one. Um, he says, "Sleep is the greatest legal." performance-enhancing drug that most people are probably neglecting. Okay. Speaking oh, of drugs, you know, I've heard the phrase that dreaming is basically going on a 
the shrimps trip for an acid trip for eight hours a night and then waking up. So. And, and I think I think clearly the science bears it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe we can have some nice things. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly, exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, now that you, you're getting enough sleep and um, you've in charge of Property 24. Tell me, what are some of the things that you're busy with there at the moment? Yeah, it's been a it's uh, it's been a good month, so it's been a good start to the year. Um, but uh, generally, what we do in the first couple of months is strat planning, so strategy strategy planning, and um, so that's what we've been prepping for and coming up and spending a lot of time thinking about the next three to five years. Specifically, we're thinking about um, what it means to deepen our property classifieds vertical. So what can we do to become more entrenched in the property sector in South Africa? Mm-hmm. But then we're also exploring more more um, uh, sort of uh, further out there opportunities like generative AI applications to online classified businesses. Uh, businesses. Um, okay. So that conversation, I think, is quite a really interesting one to to try and get our, get our heads around. What um, does that look like? Um, well, so th- I think that's that's that's, that's, the you know, that, that's the big question. That's the big exploratory question. I think um, when generative AI and large language models first came out, there was a there was a there was a massive conversation around disrupting search and changing the way people engage with with such tools. Um, and so uh, all the big search engines started incorporating then these large language models into them to make it easier for you to use. Um, but it's not clear yet whether the evidence, so there's not enough evidence to show that actually consumer preferences are changing in terms of how they search for core parts of their lives. So okay. property is big, cars are big, and insurance products are big parts of people's, uh, insurance and health products are big parts of people's lives. Um and it's not really clear right now that they are relying on large language models to to give them a different uh, sort of experience there. Um, so the jury is still out, I think, on um, uh, natural language search. Okay. However, as a as an enabler, and I think this is where the biggest applications are, so productivity enablers. Um, whether you enable customers and B2B businesses like ours, whether you enable employees within the companies, I think there's very interesting applications there. Um, the early evidence does seem to suggest that um, the, the the fears around replacing jobs, so blue collar jobs, um, are are not quite as as uh, dramatic as perhaps they were first communicated. Actually, it seems to be right now much more about productivity enhancement okay. within um, within more skilled jobs. Um, and so we're seeing interesting applications in uh, in marketing, interesting applications in technology, uh, the, the IT IT sectors, and in very interesting applications then in how customers can potentially use these tools. Estate agents can use these tools to become more um, productive themselves. So early days, but that's sort of you know sort of roughly where the landscape seems to be seems to be landing. Okay, and. Has um, you know the the advent of a service like Property Twenty Four and AI and you know pro- enhanced productivity? What has it done to the relationship between estate agents and their customers? Yeah, so so very little um, 
very little has changed at the moment. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's the first there's an adoption, there's an adoption conversation here around how both the consumer, so the person actually buying and selling property has adopted these technologies. And then secondly, then how the estate agent interacts with that consumer. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a three, three party process here. Um, and so adoption has been, has been reasonably slow. Um, but but saying that, it's also been quite early in terms of the products and services that we have put out that use this technology. And we're still very experimental and very early stage in many of the things. So there's still room for estate agents in there. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. There is no, uh, under no circumstance, you know, it's such, a, it's such an important property and insurance and healthcare alike mm. are just such important big decisions that most people want access to a human being to be able to to be able to talk through their options and and that we see that we see that you know across different industries and i guess no matter how good a vr headset is or a video of a property you still want someone to show it to you exactly Exa- exactly and you still want to see it in person yeah the uh, um i think off plan is one thing uh, but when it exists you want to see it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so tell me what's the second book you brought ah, today? second book okay so the second book I want to talk about is, um, and this I have brought, so this is called Factifulness, um, and this is by Hans, Hans Rosling. Uh, this was first introduced to many of us, actually, in 2018 by the Liberty CEO at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, and it is a reasonably old book, uh, you know, it was 20 years old, I think, now. But um, the, uh, the introduction was quite, fantastic and it was as part of a broader leadership rollout as well so it was incorporated into many of our leadership interventions and training discussions um it took me again a couple of years to actually get the book um i think i only got it in 2022 also bought it on online got it on take a lot um and the reason this book is fascinating is it just reminds you how much of your world is influenced by the perceptions of others around you and by what you read in in um, either social media or in traditional news media. It's it's a complete, you know, you are, you're extremely um, swayed by what you see. But when you actually look to get the data, uh, that changes everything. Uh, you know, your perception of whether things are improving, your perception of whether things are deteriorating, everything is actually data-driven. Um, and I think what happens is we spend lots of time in these social media bubbles or in these in these media circles where um, there's a lot of negativity and there's a there's a pressing fear. There's almost like an imminent danger feeling to a lot of the conversations. But this book helps you realize that actually most of us are wrong about the world in in its entirety. Um, and I thought that was that was great. So you know, and I think anybody who works with data, um, you know, could benefit from just being reminded that this is this is something we are data driven people, and so let's let's get the data. So before thinking that things are so bad, actually look at the data. And exactly. Do you think South Africans are particularly guilty of this? <laughs> so interestingly, he uh, uh, the author does talk about the tests the tests he has run so he has a quiz um uh, and and that's the basis that's that's a sort of fundamental base of a lot of the the book which is a quiz about the state of the world so 
do you think uh, childhood mortality has and he's giving you and gives you three options or he says um uh the uh, number of or the proportion of females finishing high school now versus 50 years ago uh the he's got he's got sort of indicators like that and it's quite a long it's um how many questions there on the quiz uh, differently about a dozen so questions and um his uh resp- or his analysis of it is basically every single country he goes to gets less than i think 3 out of that full number i think it's 12 or 13 or something like that correct and there are many countries where the entire groups that he works with will be getting nothing right and it's all their perception it's all just perception based um so are south africans more negative not according to the facts <laughs> not according to the data yeah, let's look at the data it does not appear so um but of course i mean we do gen- you know we do here we do here lots in our circles um, okay so is it an uplifting read would you say I think so. I mean um for me for me the first bits when the first realization hits you that's probably the biggest wake up call and then the rest of the book is just a sort of reminding you about the wake up call you had. But um but definitely very very interesting. Yeah, I mean I know this podcast isn't about me but that's why I find many non-fiction books do you know they tell you the idea in the first paragraph and the rest of the book is <laughs> anecdotes and kind of regurgitating the idea uh, which is why I'm more of a fiction reader myself um but enough about me would you have a favorite quote from the book um yeah i do um so this one um actually two quotes this one here I want to talk about so um and it's and it's a little bit related to what we've already said but every group of people i ask and this is from the author every group of people i ask thinks the world is more frightening more violent and more hopeless in short more dramatic than it really is um and that's a global comment and then the next quote that he said and i think this maybe speaks more to your question about the south african condition remember things can be bad and getting better and i think that that for me is really i mean that that sort of sums it up i think most of us stop at the at the first bit um and we don't see the improvements around us. Yeah, both things can be true. Exactly. Exactly. So do you tend to read uh fiction or non-fiction what what genres do you like to read? Sure, wide range, wide range of genres. Um I the books I brought today are all non-fiction. They happen to be they happen to be non-fiction, but um uh, my favorite fictional uh genres are historical fiction. Okay. I really love living reading reading about uh, stuff that happened hundreds of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um uh but I do have a wide range of other fictional uh, genres at home and um and all the non-fiction genres mainly around leadership and business. That's I okay. think And leadership is one of the things you're passionate about, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think it it started it started at a very young age at school with you know the leadership positions at school and it just carried on through university and then any opportunity at work and carrying on now into some of these um positions um and it really you know the words around it eluded me until until uh, a course we did when I was at Liberty with Stanley Bank um and there was the first time I was introduced to concepts of service servant leadership this was in 2016 2017 and then and those principles of servant leadership actually 
they really resonated with me around. I mean, there's 10 principles, but uh, you know, things around empathy and listening and building other people up. Um, uh, it, it was just, it was just so much about it. it just made sense to me. And so, okay. you know, that those principles in particular. What is servant leadership in a nutshell? Yeah. So, so it basically is, is that it's, um, it's effectively putting the people around you first and, mm-hmm and focusing on their growth and development and focusing on them becoming better. And the skills required to do that, which involve empathy, which involve listening. Um, uh, I've drawn a blank on some of the other principles, but the mm-hmm. wide the wide range of, of skills you would need to do that effectively make you that sort of leader. Um, you know, it changes a lot of the way of leading um, from much more sort of autocratic styles to much more collaborative styles um it emphasizes the leader's role from behind not from the front um uh, and and not to say there mustn't be direction clear purpose and and plans and time all of that remains it's more the approach to the all the good stuff that we know um we need to have in place. creating psychological safety exactly exactly yeah, yeah. What's what's the third book you have? Yeah, so the third one, the third one is a different, is a very different book. Um, so this is called um, Autobiography of a Yogi. Okay. Um, and it's by uh, someone called Paramahansa Yogananda. Um, now this book, it's it's a heavy book. It's at the intersection of I would say religion, various religions, and spirituality in broader spiritual concepts. It took me a year to read this book, um, and I read okay. a few pages every night because it was that dense. I found it was that dense, and the concepts were that sort of important to me that I couldn't manage more than a few pages every night. So it took about a year to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was actually gifted to me um, um, uh, at the beginning of 2023. So that's that where it came from. Um, and it explores it explores quite core beliefs around how people are connected to one another and actually what being part of society really means it also talks at one level about the uh, the uh, from a religious perspective and spiritual the existence of a greater being but then also how people engage with that concept and how they become and how they are able to almost free themselves from, from some of the more um, sort of materialistic uh, sort of tendencies that most of us uh, sort of aspire to, um, which I still do. I'm not saying you know materialistic tendencies are bad, but it does help you get a different perspective on on them. Um, and so this, uh, you know, it is an autobiography. So it is this particular person's uh, life, and um, it was written about his life up until about the mid 1950s. Okay. Uh, to, so it is actually an old. It's a very old book. Um, the reason it was gifted to me was this is the book that Steve Jobs read every year before his passing. Um, and he got as many people around him to read it. And so when I took on my tech leadership job, one of my friends thought this was a good idea for me to pick up. And I can understand why. Uh, it does make you appreciate differently the way the way um, the world is connected. Um, so, so, yeah, yeah, it is a... It, it it look it, and and it is heavy, right? So, yeah. so and when I say it's heavy, it deals with concepts that are you, know, you have to be in the right mindset. And 
I happen to be in the right mindset. I don't think if I received this book in 2022 or 2021, it would have should have landed. Um, and I think it's therefore, you know, if you're on some sort of journey, if you are more interested in spirituality, then this is probably something that can help unlock some of that, some of that thinking. So with a heavy book like this, how do you digest it? You know, do you have a discipline where you read a little bit at a time and reflect? Um, do you write things down? How do you make sure you get the most of these books? Yeah, that is a good question. So I don't write things down, and I think it would be well. I keep little notes on on a on, a, on an app um, mm-hmm. uh, just just for interest, but I don't actually properly write things down. Um, what I found most helpful is actually talking about some of this stuff, okay. so especially when it's very very complicated con or to me anyway i find very complicated concepts you know so reading a couple of pages trying to trying to ingest what is going on and actually just so talking about um and and obviously talking about with the right-minded people mm-hmm. and, you know or it doesn't have to be even like-minded it's just people that you know you can bounce ideas off that sort of helps things helps things then I think you could probably, given the number of references to different religious texts in this book and and the way it's been written, um, you know, I think you could spend, as Steve Jobs did, his whole life reading it. Okay. And you still get something new every time you read it. And so it's definitely not a one in. So if you're comfortable sharing, who are some of the people that do have these diffraction discussions with? <laughs> Or perhaps another question, who do you take your reading recommendations from? Yeah, okay, okay. So that's a good one. So, so reading recommendations generally come from the circle around me. So when it's, okay, when it's nonfiction. So nonfiction books come from uh, recommendations from close people and business, uh, business colleagues as well. Um, fiction is a little bit simpler. Fiction, I have, uh, we have a market in our suburb every month okay and i go to that park at the park and i go to that market and there's a secondhand book table and that's where i buy (laughs) as many secondhand books as i can possibly find that are interesting and that's how i choose the fictional books but um but the non-fictional books definitely by recommendation um you know your question about who to talk to i think it's a wide range i think it depends on what the topic is actually um and uh uh, there are definitely a few actuaries that I've, and, and, and I am very close friends with many actuaries from my university. And mm-hmm. so they form a core part of my my uh, circle talking about things. Trauma bonding. Yes, exactly. It is trauma bonding, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but many, many people that, uh, you know, wide qualifications and wide range of different experiences, I think, just add to some of these, add to these, some of these conversations. Okay, and and you say this book you read around the time of transitioning in, in your career, right? Yeah. And how have you found being an actuary in your new role? What what actuarial skills have you managed to bring to the table, if any? Yeah, yeah, great, great, great question. I think, um, look, I think traditional actuarial skills are maybe maybe one way of describing the skills. But I think the actuarial skill set is actually quite quite broad. Yeah, how one would, how one. How would one even define it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I would use I would use a little bit of the way the actual society thinks about it. I mean, there's technical skills that you have, but there's also that normative professional component that is a big piece of our lives. And um, I'm not sure 
you know, I think as actuaries, we we sort of know it's there and we maybe appreciate it, but we don't quite engage maybe the way we should with it because that is a bit of a differentiator. I think our technical skills are important, but our levels of professionalism and how we approach problem solving, I think ethics, all of that is very different. And so, you know, I think that bit of life, um, uh, and I include in that leadership skills and communication skills and all that, that, you know, training as an actuary and working as an actuary allowed um, certainly me to build. All of that is transportable. Okay. Okay. Doing the right thing, clear communication, being a professional, that is that is all the way. And and in some instances, one could argue that is more than 50% of it, right? Um, and so I think all of that has come across. I think on the technical side, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tougher for the more insurance-specific um, concepts that I certainly have been exposed to over time. But more general financial maths concepts um, are valuable 